Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Welcome, everyone. Okay, welcome. Yeah. Happy welcome, Friday. Rod. Happy Friday Cheers. afternoon. Cheers. Cheers, gentlemen. Pre, the pre-cottage beverage. Cheers, cheers. Oh, you're, I don't know, you're, you're a little delayed uh, there, Rod, or it, may, it might just be me. Hopefully you're... Maybe your brain is delayed. Yeah, the hamsters in the internet wheel start running the clock. Before we get started, everyone, I know you're fascinated waiting for the disclaimer. You should not be taking investment advice from four dudes on a happy hour riff cast at the end, at the end of a Friday. <laughs> so if you're going to get financial advice... Don't get it here, but having said that, we're going to have a wonderful conversation with Lord Niederhofer, and uh, I think this is going to be a, a really good one. Uh, so super excited to uh, have you on, Roy, and thank Thanks. you for taking the time to join us. My pleasure. I'll do my best. Why don't, why don't you uh, frame your uh, background for everybody? Uh, I'm sure most people on the on the show will be familiar with you, but but why don't you just give us a little background? You know, a little bit of the beginning, uh, early years, career arc, how you got into this crazy business and so on. I started with a completely different plan from where I ended up. I was going to be a neuroscientist. I uh, had become a, a pretty good young programmer of computers uh, back in uh, the late 70s and early 80s. And I got very interested in the human brain and what was going on inside there. So I spent uh, my college years studying uh, visual perception and recognition and also music perception. I'm, as some of you may know, I'm a bit of a musician and I got very interested in answering the question, uh, is there any difference between the effect of musical training on people and the uh, and people who are not musically trained and how their brains work? And I was all set to do that 
for my career, but I had an alternate offer. Uh, I had a, I was going to go off to Cambridge and study that. And then my brother, who was in the hedge fund business from the uh, mid-70s, asked me to come and help him in New York. And basically, I couldn't afford to not take that offer. So I went to work for my brother, Victor, who's trained a, a lot of really successful people over the years uh, in both hedge funds and elsewhere and worked for him for five years. And then in uh, 92, I, I left and we began trading at RG Niederhofer Capital Management in uh, July of 93. So I can't believe I'm coming up on 30 years in this business. Uh, we really are doing just about the same thing now as we were doing then. We had the idea to be short duration quantitative traders that could provide downside protection for people with equity and fixed income exposure, traditional exposures, and be uncorrelated to what, all, uh, what else was out there, which even today is still mostly trend following out there in the CTA macro space. So we've been uh, evolving uh, over the years, but that's been our mission. And we still have, uh, if you were to hear my presentation today, it sounds very, very much like the things I told our first investors in the, mid, in the early 90s. Incredible. Well, so in short, your brother ruined your life. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. And by the way, he's still at it too. I just saw yeah. him a couple of nights ago and he's, uh, he follows the markets continually. And I think it's hard to get it out of your system once you're, once you're in the, uh, in, in the system of, uh, in the, in the, uh, in, in the markets as it were, as it were. So, exactly. Um, I, I think so, it's a little bit of a, uh, a dopamine high that people get, just like playing yeah. video games or even the way, the way many uh, social media is designed. Markets provide that same small burst of dopamine when you check the prices and hopefully there's always hope. So there's always a little bit of burst of pleasure uh, in there. And now, of course, now markets are not even 24-5, they're 24-7 because of crypto. Yep. Thank you very much, Bitcoin. Yeah. It's true. I, that's that's on the light on went on for me for crypto. But so you've been you have you been in the role as as CIO for the for the entire thirty years of I mean the the company is is your namesake. So I'm assuming you've been sort of at the helm. For I have. That. Yeah, I, I was so, a lousy employee even for my brother. I've never worked for anyone <laughs> in my life, and uh, I just uh, I, I I think what I'm good at is I'm a I'm a generalist and I'm pretty good at a lot of things. And I might be pretty good at enough things that I'm unusually good at being pretty good at a lot of things, if that makes sense. So it's it's turned out to be a good role for me. And I've been very, very fortunate to have exceptional people all the way through. I made a very, very good decision uh, on day, even day zero before I started the firm. I made one phone call to a guy that I had hired four or five years before at my brother's named Paul Shen, who is my CIO. And he agreed to come on board. He was working for the Comex and had been uh, floor local in the NYMEX and also design systems. So he'd had, he had all sorts of experience. And the two of us have been a great team all the way through. And of course, I have a lot, of, lot to say about the investment strategy, but he has really been the one kind of flying the plane while I sort of designed the aircraft. And how has your, your role evolved over 30 years of, of, of um, captaining this ship, if you will, um, and adapting to markets, to client uh, desires, to, to all the various um, vagaries that, that uh, come into an investment business. 
I think in some ways it's exactly the same. I, even back then, there was a need for institutional quality management in the CTA space, and there wasn't a lot of it. And to give you a sense of what passed for institutional quality management, I was set up in a one-bedroom apartment on 7th Avenue and 58th Street. Around the living room of that apartment, I had about six or seven computers spitting out system ideas and trading stations. And we had about three people in there. And I had people come in from a very well-known pension fund. And they not only did they allocate, but they had they what they did, they parceled out uh, five pieces to allocate to five different consultants. And two out of the five allocated to us. So if you can imagine a pension fund today allocating to a 26-year-old guy in his living room of a one-bedroom apartment, it's just unheard of. But back in the day, that's where that's where the industry was. And that's where, I guess, there was some talent to be found, not just us, but we were one of many kind of quirky, unusual firms. So, I, however, I recognize that I needed to really step it up. And so we have always tried to be really institutionally friendly. And I think one of the things that my role has been is to be able to explain and give people confidence in their investment in something that's rather arcane. I mean, short-term, non-trend-following trading is not the same as, well, when something's going up, we buy it and we hold it for a few quarters and then we sell it. That's easy. Or we buy stocks that are cheap and sell them when they're expensive. That's easy. But, you know, we analyze 30 years of high-frequency data and we come up with patterns using machine. It's a little more, more of a stretch for people. So being good at explaining things has been something that, I've always tried to focus on because it gives clients comfort. And even today, I think we're, we've been kind of at the forefront of producing interesting general interest articles for many, many years. I used to publish a, uh, a, a monthly letter that unlike almost every other hedge fund in the world, we would actually do research that was relevant to the clients that were reading the report instead of just about us. And that I think also was was something that I a, a little bit of an insight that I had. Can you now, highlight for, some examples of that? I, I'd love to pull on that a little bit and just sure. Like um, what, yeah. So so we've had a I've had a couple of interesting ideas that are counter consensus over the course of time that we really have focused on, and one of them is the role of realized volatility and returns. Basically, an one overarching theme of our studies over 30 years has been when volatility is high, pretty much everything is in trouble because most investments in the traditional world and in hedge funds are short volatility investments and a lot of ways of describing the word short volatility. But when vol goes up, people have trouble. Um, another thing we came up with was that very early on, and we're talking mid, not, mid to late 90s. Now, now everybody knows it, but at the time it was heresy to say that hedge funds didn't make money when the stock market went down because they literally were hedge funds. You know, that's what hedge funds were. They were hedged against stock market declines. And it's true in the early 2000s up to the, about that point, some did. But even then, it was clear that as an asset class, not as an individual manager, the data was very, very clear that hedge funds were only making money when the stock market went up. And therefore, the hedge fund industry was essentially just a long bet on equities going mm -hmm. up. And we were very 
very upfront there at saying that. And then we've talked a lot about trend following and what it is and what it isn't. Um, one thing I, you know, we love trend following and we believe in the strategy, but we've been very clear in for years and years that trend following doesn't mean you have a put on the stock market. And we've explained that for decades. And the final theme that we come up with, which I think is a really relevant one for right now, is that the nature of the slope of the yield curve in fixed income futures is such that if you're a long duration holder of fixed income, you can't be short fixed income futures. It's too costly. Typically, the height of the yield mm -hmm. curve has been about 3% from zero duration out to say 10 years. And you've paid or received that carry. If you're long fixed income futures, you've made about 3%. And we showed that, in fact, most of the profits in, of CTAs actually came from that roll yield rather than actually being correct on the fact that interest rates had gone down for 30 years. It was actually like three quarters roll yield and one quarter trend following that actually made the money, which is fine. The problem, however, happens when rates start to rise. And I don't think anyone had ever asked the question, is managed futures truly a symmetrical strategy in fixed income? And you know, most people say, well, of course it is. You can go short just as easily as you go long, but it doesn't work that way. And the reason it doesn't work is that you have this roll yield either paying you or eating away at your profits every single day. And in fact, we showed, which was complete, I, I thought it was a mistake when we came up with this result. What we did is we said, what would happen if time went backwards from today to 1990 and yields went up to where they were in 1990, about six or 7%. Now, I think most people would say, well, the fixed income futures market is definitely gonna go down, right? Yields go up, bonds go down, it's that simple. Well, it's not that simple because of the roll yield, which is costing you two or 3% every year. So over 30 years, you've paid a lot of roll yield. And it turns out that if interest rates in 2050 are where they were in 1990, the price of the 10-year note future is going to be higher than it is today, which is completely counterintuitive, but it's also true. As uh, There's one caveat, as long as the yield curve does what it usually does, 97% of the time, which is have a positive slope. And of course, there's a natural... Uh, reason for that because it's more risky to lend somebody money for 30 years than it is for a day. Yeah, we found the exact same phenomenon um, that the roll yield, the starting yield and the roll yield account for about 85% of the total return of treasuries over the very long term, right? So to be short treasuries, you have to overcome just a remarkably large hurdle rate, right? And And if you evaluate a very large variety of different trend strategies, trend specifications, then we have certainly found that for any kind of traditional trend following strategy, there is no alpha in being short fixed income, period. All the alpha is on is on the long side. I'm wondering, did you find a similar outcome in equities? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's less we, direct though, right? This is just more of a more of a wishful thinking type of thing that the, the human ingenuity will continue to create growth in a way that leads to an upward drift in equity markets. Yes. So, yeah. and by the way, the same is true for hedge funds. It's not just CTAs. Again, I'm using the word CTA here as 
the way that most people invest in CTAs, which for most people means 90% trend following. There are obviously yes. some managers who are not subject to this general uh, uh, claim that I'm making here. So I don't want to, mm -hmm. I don't want to say everyone is. Yeah, no, understood. So how do you deal with that reality then as a trend follower? Do you just accept it and everybody needs to be cool with the fact that most of the PNL comes from long only equity and long only bonds? Well, I, I, I guess we have always tried to distinguish ourselves as since our duration is only about two days. So we spend much less actual time being short. We try to be really tactical and you know, we might get minus two or even minus three beta to the 10 year, but only for 12 hours or for two days at a time. So we're not paying very much roll yield in that time. And it turns out that you can actually make money on the short side being tactical. And, you know, I, I, if it's okay, may I show a, a slide? Is that okay? Sure. Yeah, please do. Yes, please. Um, let's see if this will work. Share a window. Okay, that should do it. Can you all see that? Mm -hmm. Yes, sir. All right, so what we're looking at are four different boxes. What we did here is we asked the question, what happens when bonds go down a lot, when stocks go down a lot, when bonds go up a lot, and when stocks go up a lot? So this is when your portfolios either make a lot of money or lose a lot of money if you've got the traditional mix of stocks and bonds. And by bonds here, I mean Barclays Global Ag Fixed Income, which is a good proxy, I believe, for how people use bonds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's also MSCI World Equities, which is, I think, a good proxy for global equities. And the question we asked is, if we take the 25 worst peak to trough drawdowns, now that's when the damage happens. It doesn't happen over five or 10 years. It usually happens in about you know, 15 or 25 or 60 days, like the taper tantrum. And if you add those together, that's an enormous amount of decline in a portfolio. And theoretically, at least, any sort of protective strategy, a hedge strategy, should be making money, ideally, in all four of these quadrants. And what we found, though, is that the, uh, the left side of the chart, which is bond drawdowns, shows that every type of hedge fund style except the little one on the top, which is market neutral, which is just up marginally. Every other hedge fund style is down, and so are CTAs. And stock drawdowns, same thing. Every hedge fund style is down, except for, uh, uh, including uh, market neutral. And in fact, it also shows something else. Normally, people think of bonds as highly protective during stock drawdowns. Well, look, this is... Uh, I think Barclays Global Ag in there, it doesn't look like it made much money at all in the worst drawdowns for stocks. And the equity market didn't make money in the, in the worst drawdowns for bonds. So it's hard to find anything. And it, what we're showing here is that short duration strategies can be tactical and make money in these, uh, in these environments. And this is, this is, I think, like the chart of the century or, or the chart of the decade, because none of us really know what we're going to face. We're in a world of central bank balance sheet expansion. We had a pandemic. I mean, the, the news is feels like it's going to be even crazier in the next 10 years than it was in the last 10 years. And we have central banks with massive balance sheets printing faster than they've ever printed and completely backed into a corner that they, I mean, I don't believe the Fed is going to have, ever going to be able to taper. 
they've, they've said it over and over again, and every time they try, they fail. And my view is that they will continue to fail. Uh, it's impossible. Once you've begun the opium drip, you can't stop it. And so we have to wonder, well, what's going to happen? And is it going to be inflationary? Well, that would be certainly the upper left. Is it going to be terribly deflationary for stocks? Maybe somehow. I mean, I could see that happening. We don't really know if there's going to be some interest rate effect on equities that take stocks down along with bonds or maybe even independently. But we also have to worry about deflation here. The rate's going to go you know, to zero or beyond in the United States. Well, that's this box. And of course, if we have hyperinflation or even just a lot of liquidity, as we've seen you know, since 2009, we could get this box. So all four of these must be reckoned with. And you can't just say, well, I'm just going to buy bond puts. And I'm just going to buy stock puts. It doesn't work because you face these. You have to keep up with the stock market. And if you don't, you're going to have massive real losses, even though nominally you could be making money as anyone who was invested in Zimbabwe knows, for instance. So this to me is, you know, how do you protect a portfolio against all four of these scenarios? And the answer, and I'm sure you guys have come up with the same answer, which is probably why we're here, is these are very volatile scenarios. So you've got to be long volatility. And as you see in at least the left side of this chart and in so many other ways of looking at it, so many types of investments are short volatility and that's not going to work in any of these four boxes. I would say, right. too, that the situation has gotten substantially worse over the last decade, right? Because the diversification objective has been more punitive over the last 12 years sure. than it has ever been in the history of active markets. And so you've seen so many hedge funds, even CTA strategies, begin to gravitate to higher and higher ambient average beta exposure, right? So the hedge fund strategies that might have at least offered some kind of buffer or maybe you had a 50-50 chance that they were going to be up or down in an equity drawdown 10 years ago, now the probability that they're going to be down in an equity drawdown is closer to 70, yep. 80, 90%, right? So yes. you really got to think even more differently about your hedge fund or your alt exposure now than you did even 10 years ago. Yes, I, I think part of that is just a matter of size, where the longer, the bigger you are, the harder it is to make tactical bets on the short side because of the roll yield issue, both in stocks and bonds, as we discussed earlier. So it kind of forces people into positive roll yield positions because it's too hard to get in and out and too costly into negative roll yield positions. And I think that it's not intentional. It's just that as the industry has grown, it's impossible not to be long stocks and bonds. And those of us who have failed to do so and have really tried to maintain this diversifying uh, quality have paid dearly. I mean, many of my peers who were doing similar things to me in their, let's say, late 2000s are no longer in business. And you know, we've certainly uh, not, I wouldn't say that we've thrived over the last 12 years, but we're still around. And, um, and I'll show you another chart uh, that really uh, kind of demonstrates the uh, what we're talking about. Um, this is one that we asked the question, what does, uh, we're going to look at the chart on the right. Um, all we did here is we said, what does the monthly change in the S&P 
have to do with the performance of CTAs and hedge funds? And you would think there'd be a pretty easy relationship, but it actually turns out that the relationship for real is exactly the opposite of what most people think it should be. Um, the orange line is the performance of the uh, Barclays CTA index. And the different boxes, this is minus 5% or less for the S&P. This one's minus 5 to minus 2.5%. This is minus 2.5 to 0, 0 to 2.5, et cetera. So this is when stocks are up 5% or more, this orange CTAs are doing beautifully. And also when they're up 2.5% or more, great. No other box is really above zero. So what this tells us is that all the profits of, CT, of the CTA index, again, not individual CTAs, just the index, from 2003 to now have occurred in months when the S&P was up 2.5% or more. So that is not what people think that they're buying. And in terms of hedge funds, now you really see it. This black line is the hedge fund index. And it's like a straight line. It's telling us that hedge funds are just a positive 0.3 beta bet. They're just a lower the volatility beta position. That's all it is. Mm -hmm. right? Like exactly. if they were smart, they just lever up to the point where their volatility was similar <laughs> to the S&P and at least they'd have a fighting chance. But right. I mean, I think they I think they sell just their low vol version of the directionality of markets. Exactly. Um, and and I think what, what fits in a portfolio better and helps the portfolio is more like this convexity. This happens to be one of our funds that makes most of its money up here on the downside when stocks are having down months, but also some money on the upside. So that's the, the two boxes that I showed you earlier. The stocks up a lot and stocks down a lot, definitely, or even stocks down a little. And the same thing happens to be true for fixed income. You see what I'm talking about. Um, how CTAs are not actually uh, able to make money being short fixed income. So this is the daily return of that Barclays Global Ag Index. And this is 1% uh, or less performance. This is 1% or more, et cetera. So the orange, again, is the CTA index. So basically, we have that straight line again. CTAs are essentially statically long the Barclays Global Ag Index. That's I think there's some... I think there's some interesting context to explore here too, right? I, I mean, for example, I'm fascinated by the fact that you use monthly returns for the equity analysis and daily returns for the for the fixed income analysis. And it, it highlights something that we have found too, which is that the time frame or the, the periodicity of observation matters a great deal in evaluating the skew or the yes. convexity of CTA strategies, right? Typically, right. if you were to observe kind of quarterly periodicity, for example, you'd observe a more positive convexity in, um, in more CTAs, especially recently because they've, they've gotten longer and longer in their, in their holding period and their look back horizons, right? And therefore, you know, in a, in a sort of 2008 or 2000 style bear market, you would expect CTAs to probably provide some positive convexity, you know, uh, from quarter to quarter. But in rapid drops like March 2020 or really any of the of the drops we've seen over the last 10 years, traditional CTAs are just not designed to provide the positive convexity or the put-like quality that CTAs in general are often pitched as, you know, being Crisis expected alpha. to provide. Yeah, yeah. 
So any, any exactly comments right. on that? Yeah, I, I mean, if you if we remember very, if, you know, 2008 is seared into my memory, so I, I could quote, you know, script chapter and verse. Hours two. So, <laughs> uh, but if you remember, as of October 31, it was not looking so good for CTAs. Yeah, stocks were right. already down 20, 30 percent, and CTAs were down. And the only mm -hmm. reason that this happened is that there was a massive fixed income rally at the end of the year. Mm -hmm. That saved everybody in the industry, really from October mm -hmm. to December. Most of it was November, December. Um, so that was great for the industry. I mean, thank God there probably wouldn't be a CTA industry what, if it wasn't for that. You missed 2008. You know, what, what is your selling point if, you, if, you're not, uh, if you're not there in 2008? Um, by the way, the reason that we chose the daily versus monthly there is that this particular fund that I'm showing here uh, does not actually trade equities. So... We have, an, we are not able to get on board an equity move because we don't trade them. So right. uh, what we were showing was that eventually, and this is, a, I think, another general point, equity market volatility can happen quickly, but eventually it filters into all markets. Yes. So you, you know, you have one big up day. It generally it might not move the bond market very much, but you have. 20 big up days or 20 big down days, you can be sure that's going to move the currencies, that's going to move commodities, et cetera. So the, the point was to use a longer duration as people experience the equity market, but to show that on a day-by-day -day basis, this fund that we're talking about here actually does have the ability to make money on down days immediately for fixed income rather than have to wait for the thing to get volatile. You know? So that's that's the reason. So, so yeah, the, the discussion is exactly right. The discussion around the positive carry in equities and bonds and the inability for a, a diversified CTA to not be long those things, is that what's led you generally to, like, do your funds exclude equities in order to be able to capture idiosyncratic risk? That is uh, so our, our, flagship actually, our flagship actually trades equities and, and likes okay. to be long and short. So it, I, I, it just ha this chart happens to be from a presentation of a fund that's designed to be zero risk weight under Basel III for Asian investors. Essentially what that means okay. is you can only trade fixed income and currency. Right, and so what you're describing, how you deal with the, just go, to, to recap, how you deal with the upward drift is you just trade faster, shorter exactly. term, and you can, exactly. you and can that, get that's in, snipe been, it, and then get back out. Right, that, and that's always been our distinguishing feature, and of course that puts an upper bound on your asset size. You know, yeah. you, you can, you'll never have a $20 billion short-term CTA. You just can't do it. What, what do you think the capacity is there? I think two or three billion at again, you have to you have to set a vol. So let's say it's ten right, or twelve vol. Yep. So I'd say two or three billion, maybe three billion at ten vol is about it. Right. That's been my experience. I want to make sure we talk, we reemphasize a point which which you mentioned, but I want to make sure that we don't gloss it over because I think a lot of C or many CTA investors really don't understand that even in two thousand and 2008, all of the crisis alpha gains came from long bond positions, not from short equity positions. Correct. Right. Yes. And I think we need to we need to disaggregate what you said about ag and losing money. Right. That the fact yes. that the aggregate bond index has lost money. Um, that be, that's because there's a lot of corporates in there. Right. So when Adam speaks about bonds, we're talking about sovereign bonds that tend to be a flight to safety right that's so, right that's right yep. you know guys yeah. like um drucken miller didn't make money shorting the s p they he made money going long tlt in his account similar to many ctas probably the yes, euro that's right and so this euro index does, i will say 
in fairness, this index has a little bit of equity-ishness in it because of that. But at the same time, most people don't just put treasuries in their portfolios. This is what you know, most pension yes. funds that I talk to have a more Barclays Global Ag fixed income-ish allocation than they do just, we're going to be long U.S. treasuries. And of course, even outside the U.S., you have this issue <laughs> where there's a flight into the U.S. for, for safety out, you know, from wherever else. Maybe into Japan, right. let's say. As well. Right. So the, the other thing is, uh, in those charts, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but at the bottom right, there was the up, the, the, uh, what you capture on the upside of the S&P 500 or the equity markets, generally speaking. CTAs have certainly had a hard time over the last 10 years in capturing any significant upside to be able to provide those types of returns for clients. And so what has that been a result of as you analyze the data? Has it been just whipsawing? Um, like, wh wh where, what do you see that being uh, the issue? In, in, in the sense of why, why have this? Why has it, why has it, haven't, a lot of people, when you talk about the word trend, and you and they perceive it to be as if there's something making money and it's trendy, I'm going to make money there. And then they've seen a CTA make no money for a decade. And then they're looking at the NASDAQ, they're looking at the S&P, seeing a straight line in their eyes and saying, how is it possible that you are a trend manager that didn't capture any of that trend? I think a lot of managers have, to tell you the truth. I mean, I, I think a lot of other markets have been very, very difficult. The currency markets and fixed income markets have not. But I would say, you know, trend following and, and and uh, equities has been a pretty good uh, good place to look. So, I, uh, I I don't I can't speak for anyone else's system, but um, I think what Rodrigo's saying is that like a diversified CTA, the diversified CTA indices have kind of been were kind of flatlined between two thousand nine and and twenty nineteen, right? right? And and if you look at equity markets, it's been almost a straight line up with a couple of you know um, corrections that lasted all of three hours before the Fed stepped in. Um, and so there's, for people that are maybe not fully understanding the fact that these CTAs trade 80 markets and they're not only focused on the S&P, the NASDAQ and Dow futures or or just treasury and, and bond futures, that while they may have made lots of money being long trends in US equities and, and some sovereign bond markets, that the whipsaws in all of the other, you know, 60 markets that they trade took away sufficiently that you weren't able to see the positive returns that they earned on equities in the portfolio because they were overwhelmed by the other whipsaws maybe. Yes, I, I think that's true. I, I would also say that historically, and now we have to go back into the 2000s and before, equities did not trend as well as the other markets. You know, what trended fixed income and FX trended and in the 70s commodities trended. So people tended to be overweight those relative to equities. And I think it took a while for people to evolve and say, well, wait a minute, these it looks like the stocks are going in a big trend. We got to have more stocks. And of course, that could be another explanation for the evolution it's almost of, of CTAs toward being long equities and fixed income. Basically, if you weren't long equities in fixed income or you failed to get long equities in fixed income, you did not survive. So this is just right. a survivor bias issue rather than a, uh, than a strategy issue. And those who got longer equities did better and better and attracted more money and needed to be longer equities, as we talked about before. So 
it's a positive, positive, re positive reinforcing cycle. Roy, I'd love right. to um, dig into, uh, there's a couple of directions I want to explore. First of all, um, your background in, in neuroscience, do you bring any of the thinking that you, or techniques that you learned? Um, because there's, there's a lot of overlap in, between certainly modern neuroscience and um, financial time series, right? Both of them deal in time series and with lots of noise and lots of network effects and, and lots of feedback effects, et cetera. Do you apply that directly, do you think, or, or peripherally, or there's no connection at all? I would say the way we do it is more like behavioral neuroscience, a little bit of a higher level than like what individual parts of the brain do and how neurons work. Um, obviously, in the sense that many machine learning paradigms are sort of mimicking the way individual neurons fit together and interact with each other, then yes, that too. But the way we look at it is that there are built-in evolved behavior patterns in the human brain that have been placed there evolutionarily. They help keep people alive over evolutionary time. So another one very good example of that is in, in most places in evolutionary time, in most times, the current status of the world is a good predictor of the future status of the world. So we have a, uh, a recency bias, essentially, that's built in because essentially the African savanna doesn't change that rapidly. And the way we apply the ideas of behavioral psychology, um, and, and this is going to sound very much like the work of Daniel Kahneman, who is an idol of mine, and I'm happy to say also more recently a friend of mine, oh, wow. um, Danny articulated in thinking fast and slow, probably a hundred different specific ideas. And every one of them can be applied directly to investments. But like one might read scripture or a book of difficult poetry, you can't just read it in one sitting. You have to just kind of read a page and think about it. And we actually, one year when that book came out, we actually did a chapter a week for probably three quarters of a year in our research meetings and someone would present and we'd talk about the, and we, we literally went through it. Like we were, we were doing like, like in Judaism, there's a weekly Torah portion. It, it was exactly like that. It was a weekly Kahneman portion. And so the, what we do is we use the ideas of behavioral psychology of these biases that we know are built in by evolution. And we try to instantiate them based on one's experience trading. When you, you know, it, let's take today, for example. I, I, the most dramatic move that occurred today, I guess, is in Bitcoin, which from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. dropped 5% after looking super strong and hitting like a, a three or five day high at exactly 5 a.m. And, and before you knew it, the thing was down you know, 10% and right near its two week low. And if you were watching that market, as I was, it was so psychologically disheartening. You felt something. It was impossible not to. And what did you feel? Well, you feel the influence of your investor behavioral biases. 
you're anchored. That's one of Kahneman's ideas to the level 45,000. And suddenly it's at 40,600. Well, that feels really bad. It's down 10% from a price that it was literally at two hours before that. And you also have this, you know, visual perceptual biases where you extend paths in your mind that are not predictive at all, but just seem like we ascribe physical properties to prices when they're not at all physical. So things like momentum are, it's a testable hypothesis, but it's not a general, uh, it's not a guaranteed thing that like a steel ball in a vacuum that has momentum. The price of Bitcoin does not have momentum like a steel ball in a vacuum. So it looks like it's going to go to 35. And so it gives you a set of emotional responses. So our trading strategy takes these observable, palpable, visceral experiences that we all have watching markets, quantifies them into testable hypotheses that we can go back and say, oh, okay, well, let's look at similar things that have happened in the soybean market and in Google and all the different markets for decades. And when we find similar things that have happened, we then can say, okay, well, what can we learn from those similar events? So while I wouldn't say it's a direct, literal application of neuroscience, I would say in it's quite relevant and theoretically driven, and that what we end up with in our trading strategy are trading rules that we follow that actually have as their independent variables, as their conditions, stories, understandable situations that anyone who's trading that market can say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, I got to get that. Another maybe summarized way to say it is if it made it to the front page of any financial news website, a big move occurred, an unusual move occurred, a high, a low, something strange, and people noticed it, our systems probably noticed it too. Amazing. So... A couple of things fell out of that for me. One of them is that you, I, I, if I understand correctly, you are trying to quantify patterns in prices that will trigger emotional responses or biases, express or, or prompt humans to express certain types of predictable biases. Yes, that is in fact and, almost, a, you inadvertently almost directly quoted my marketing materials and, uh, from 1992 and from today. <laughs> incredible. Okay. Okay. And and so, so you can sort of look at different price patterns and say, I, you know, this is, is likely to trigger confirmation bias or yes. Um, yes. anchoring or, you know, any of, like you said, 60 or a hundred different biases, cognitive biases that have been identified over the years and there's decent research on that that can help narrow the this sort of the specification of when this type of behavior is most likely to be prompted right mm -hmm. right and, and then that's the research that we do that's that's our job okay fantastic and then once you have identified patterns that express that bias you're then looking for those patterns across all markets and you're looking for ones that are that are consistent across mm -hmm. all markets is is that yeah okay in general yes yes and how much does that vary given the different players in the market like 
are the are are the those that are participating in the lumber or cotton market really i mean there there's some similarities behaviorally but there's some differences too between them and sure. those participating in equity markets so how, how do you think about that we recognize that there are going to be differences some of them are only obvious in retrospect and you know you could make you can tell a fantastic story about why the japanese people are different than the Swiss people, and therefore their markets trade differently. But I don't even want to go there as to try to explain right. that after the fact. Yeah. And you certainly wouldn't necessarily predict a certain difference a priori, which is what you need to do. You have to be prospective rather than retrospective yeah. in this storytelling. Um, so what we, our general theory is there are going to be characteristics of markets that express themselves in all markets. And then there are going to be characteristics of individual markets that express themselves in individual markets. And then there are also going to be characteristics that have expressed themselves in individual markets that have never shown up in other markets, but are going to. And that is the scariest thing of all, because if you think about an S&P doing what crude oil did last year, yeah. Can you imagine an S&P going negative? <laughs> but, so that's the yeah. unknown unknowns, I suppose. Right, the unknown unknowns, exactly. Or, you know, I, I, and you can just tell all sorts of stories. I mean, I remember one of the days, that I, and this is another one that's seared into my memory. It was uh, during the Gulf War, and our uh, Secretary of State, James Baker, was negotiating with the, the uh, Iraqis, and he got on the box and said you know we have the following statement about the end of negotiations and regrettably <laughs> by the time you finish the word regrettably <laughs> the, I remember this day, the, the crude oil market had gone from it, it, it had like a, a heartbeat shape it had gone like from 16 to 11 because everybody thought they were going to uh, have an agreement and then it, the next tick was 24. it literally more than doubled in one tick and just like a heartbeat then came all the way back down to about 20 or 21 but you know that that so anyway the the uh i'll stop here so so let's talk a little bit more about the um the behavioral side of things and how that can create patterns that allow for breakout systems and trend following that match those behaviors and numbers with the fact that you're not the first one to recognize that right in fact many many That's people have recognized it uh, you talk about a three billion dollar capacity for something what you do you're not the only one there's a big discussion with regard to trend following having been uh, there's too much money chasing it and therefore it's overwhelming the uh, traditional behavioral triggers that might have been useful in the past so what are your mm -hmm. thoughts on overcrowding? Well, I think there's there's a few ways to answer that. One way is to not always be trend following. And that is something that I think we staked that out very, very clearly back in the early 90s. And we said we are primarily contrarian, not 90% contrarian, but more than half. And we still are. So we are often on the other side of a lot of the positions that trend followers take. And so, so that's one way to literally force doing something different than the typical places that one looks. And even in hiring my researchers, what I found over the years is that 
the people that produce the best results for me are not people with traditional backgrounds because there tends to be a convergent evolution in education where people start to use the same tools and they share a syllabi and they're all, you know, they know this, you know, Python and this math library and this way of forecasting and everybody approaches it the same way, even though they might come from different parts of the world. And so people that have disparate backgrounds and are willing to look in places that are not obvious are very interesting to me and have done very, very good work for me. So hiring well, people that are willing to force themselves outside the, the usual mold of what one should be, the questions one should be asking. I think there's also a specific value to being different. Like if you have an idea that whatever you're doing is likely to be done by other people, where you can force it not to happen at those times. So, and measure that. So those are also very interesting questions. You know, the sometimes the optimal situations are the most suboptimal situations for that. Just as, you know, like in a, at a racetrack, when everybody knows that a horse that's the favorite is going to win the race, the payoff is terrible at that point. And you, we see that in markets. Markets are exactly the same. They're paramutual. So you have to be very careful to, force yourself not to follow the, uh, the, the herd of optimi optimization to find the best strategies. When everybody knows that the 20-day breakout should be bought aggressively, then maybe you want to fade the first couple days of the 20-day breakout, right? That, that sort of counterintuitive um, approaches. Well, it's certainly an interesting well, question to ask. What would, actually, I, I, let's let's dig into a more open-ended side of things. How would you approach the the research and development and strategy deployment process? Like that is actually a process for which I think investors place not enough emphasis on. You're not buying the systems that Resolve or uh, Niedermeyer have today, you're buying the evolution of those systems over time as markets evolve. So how yes. do you guys approach that problem? Because that, that that's fundamentally a, a, a very key point, I think, that some miss. And tricky so too. You, yeah. Yes, for, for sure. And I think also the, the longer one is in business, the more one learns about the, how important this process of when do you take out a strategy? When, when do you give a strategy? When do you start believing in a strategy? Do, is there a pro, an appropriate test period? What is that appropriate test period? A lot of it comes down to optimism bias, actually. It's, which is, is a very uh, humbling thought for me that if you believe your own bullshit, <laughs> you're going to believe that you have a lot more ability to answer these questions than you do. And what I've come to is the answer to most of these things is it's really hard to tell and possibly impossible to tell over very short or even medium timeframes. So one, one very important idea is be patient because if you constantly switch and here there's a, there's a wonderful book from many, many, a hundred plus years ago called Secrets of a, of a Professional Turf Better. And they talk about this very phenomenon where here, here we go about horse racing again, where if the favorite wins the first couple of races, well, then everybody tries to bet on the favorite. And then, of course, the favorite may win the next couple of races, but it's not going to pay off very much based on its probability. And then the long shot wins and no one bet on the long shot. 
and a couple of those come in and then everybody bets on that. So there's this constant sloshing back and forth. And it's very important when you're choosing strategies not to get too focused on the very short term. As we saw at the end of 2019, one of the least volatile years, maybe the least in some measures, volatile years on record, so many people got out of their equity downside protection just at the time when COVID was going to hit and the market was so vulnerable to an enormous correction. And I've seen this over and over again. I mean, we saw it in uh, no one believed the stock market could crash in, in March of 2000 when it was on the high. No one believed it. I mean, I remember 2007, people was like, it was in, people were incredulous. Even Greenspan, if you remember what he said. Like, yeah. Or was it maybe Bernanke said it. <laughs> taking over, but you know, there's not a bubble, right? And I, I also remember um, in, in terms of strategies working and not working, and this must have been about 1997, I had a guy come and sit in my office and say, you know, this is a really nice shop you have here. You have lots of research going on. You're interesting and doing great stuff. But I was just at this place in Greenwich, and they have like five Nobel Prize winners working for them, and they've never had a down month. And you know how, why why should I invest with you when I can invest with these guys who clearly have you know dozens of PhDs working for them? Was and, this 1998? Yes, yes, we know who it is. <laughs> you know where this is going. There's four letters, right? Exactly. <laughs> and and it's just a matter of cycles. And look, if they'd been able to stay with it, they had a phenomenal strategy. They just needed to stick with it. But they, you know, it was just a risk management problem more than a, more than it was a strategy problem. So when you face this question, when do you take out of this, a strategy, it's really important to be diversified and accept the fact that if you're truly diversified, a lot of what you do is going to stink and it's going to seem really bad. But that's what diversification is all about. And we see this with investors all the time. One of the studies, actually the one that we did with Danny, um, he and I presented at a hedge fund conference a few years ago. We asked the question, why is it so hard for investors to keep diversifying strategies in a portfolio. And we simulated this by saying, imagine you have 20 funds in your portfolio, 19 hedge funds with typical hedge fund performance, one CTA, and everybody's got the same sharp ratio. The only thing that's different is their correlation to each other. Hedge funds, obviously more correlated to the equity market CTAs. <clears throat> in this case, we modeled it as negatively correlated. And what we found is the loss aversion bias and the recency bias effects were probably responsible because what happens is that the way most people present their monthly performance is they have, you know, this is where we made money, this is where we lose money, and then at the bottom, there's the worst performer. So you've probably seen a monthly table, and we do this with systems also. And so the, uh, so, sorry, my son just turned off the lights on me in here. I'm sorry. I'm going to get up in a second. I'm, I was I'm like, looking, oh my I'm, God. I'm looking suspiciously yellow, but I'm going to finish this story before I do. Um, Are you in, in, enduring liver failure? <laughs> that's terrible. I'm not even, I thought you I'm, might be turning He's turning into, Marvel. he's turning oh, into Superman. vision. He's turning into <laughs> vision from Marvel. I look like the, like the Terminator now. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> that's so good. I'm going to have my kids come in and do that. That looks amazing. That's right. I, I, I thought for a second he'd actually figured out a way to blow our entire home power, which is not inconceivable. <laughs> he's my, so, he's mining so, some so, Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Danny and I asked this question. So if you present your performance that way, how often does the CTA end up at the bottom of that list monthly 
compared to the other funds? And the answer turned out to be the CTA is there four times as often as anyone else in that portfolio. And this is with the same sharp ratio. It's just so of course he's get fired. Right, exactly. And just the loss aversion. We hate to lose more than we love to win. Again, there's that lousy CTA. Didn't I just talk about that CTA last month? And the investment This is so good. Right? And we even did it. We doubled the sharp ratio of the CTA. We said the CTA is twice the sharp ratio as anybody else in the portfolio. And they still are there three times as much. Mm-hmm. So, so that was kind of an interesting thing. And when you're doing system allocation, you have this bias as well. You hate to lose. I hate to lose. Everyone hates to lose. So you want to take out your losers. And yet the markets are so random and ever-changing in their cycles, just like the horses. And people are, by their invest, investor biases, triggered to make poor decisions that are suboptimal. So sometimes just doing nothing is better than doing something that feels like it optimistically should have a positive impact. So so you address the fact that it's difficult and you have to have diversifying strategies within your mandate. Um, you, do you still have, does it come a point or are there any tools that you guys use internally to say, okay, yes. at this point, that's enough. You're clearly just noise. You have a sharp ratio yes. of zero. And it turned around. out that, so one of the things that we were able to do because we've been doing it so long is we can actually say, well, just how good are we at doing this? And the answer was not very good. So we let computers do it. We actually have what we call dynamic allocation. We let the computers with some variables that we think are at least objective and somewhat predictive say, okay, this system needs to be down leveraged. This system can be up leveraged because its environment is better. So once you can identify what those variables are, and they're not complicated variables, and there are a lot of them, um, it at least gives you maybe a better than average chance to survive if you have a system that really is bad, at least the models will probably, that this allocation system will eventually deleverage it. And finally, you'll have an, enough time. And that's all it takes. It just takes many more quarters and even years than one would think because our optimism bias makes us believe that our priors are better than they actually are. So for, for those well, that's also, been, sorry, you've also got a shorter trade horizon, right? So you, you've got a lot, a, a much higher right. sample size to exactly. be able yeah. to evaluate. And I, really sh- I should say that about trend following too. You're absolutely right. When you have a lot of individual independent observations, you're constantly getting new data and, and you can decide if your new sample is different from your prior sample. But trend following, it may be that 100 years from now, our computerized models of our personalities downloaded into the iPhone 74 that our great, great, great grandkids are playing with. We'll all be sitting around here just doing this. And one of us is going to say, wow, trend following. That was the best strategy ever because it caught the rise of this, you know, crypto insanity, NFT, whatever that went up 48 million percent. And all you had to do was trend following everything. And you would have made it. And and in fact, it may already have happened. If you think about what Bitcoin is, there's that book, uh, uh, Irrational Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. Am I getting irrational? Is that the title? Exuberance. Irrational exuberance and the madness of crowds. So if you were to to take every single one of those bubbles, and of course, the book is written like like a cautionary tale. Like whatever you do, don't buy these bubbles. 
Don't be silly. Don't do it. And you bought every one of them up a hundred times, every single one of them. And you also bit, bought Bitcoin up a hundred. You'd probably be up on the trade. Right. Yeah. So trend yeah, following may have a longer horizon than yeah. our lifetime. So let me, let me just pull on this idea of, um, cause I think if I understand what you're saying about, um, identifying strategies that are a little weaker, it's not that you are, um, it's not that you're deleveraging them such that you're removing them entirely from the suite so much as you're identifying conditions when then these strategies are more likely to be profitable and other conditions when these strategies are less likely to be profitable. Is there a way to, to, to map that to a process that an allocator like might be able to use sort of say, um, you know, in, if you're expecting the, this type of condition, then um, you're, you want to allocate to these types of strategies. And if you're expecting this other type of condition, then you want to allocate to a different, is it, is it that, extrapolatable, so to speak, or are they very specific to the types of strategies that you run? I think you can do it. I think it's really hard to do it. And I think you, you, you actually have to have alpha in your global macro ability to make that kind of call. Now, of course, all of us believe, you know, I, I always like to do this when I'm on a big, big webinar or something and say, how many people think that their investment returns are going to be better than average? And invariably, like three quarters of the people think they're going to be like better than two thirds of their peers. So and you know, obviously that's impossible, except perhaps that people tuning into my webinars are somehow selected in such a way that they really are. I like to I, I will always say that since. I'll give them that credit. But <laughs> well, couldn't you be, you know, I've, I've had this discussion recently. Couldn't you have a large portion of the population be above average, but, but nobody can be above the mean. I mean, like the, the, the mode, I think the it is median. like the median. the median, right? Yeah. It really, I, 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 you know, the expectation I, also could be, you know, there, there's like, I, I, that's like been my thesis with Bitcoin too. Like the, the, the mode, the most likely outcome is probably down, but you have a chance for like a hundred X return, on the upside and you've had it all the way through. <clears throat> so it's like a lottery ticket with a very, very positive right tail. And yet it still may have a negative median. Right. So, but I get it. The Lake Wogamagon <laughs> example, but, it but, still speaks anyway, to the fact that. Getting, getting back to what we said before, to me, the, the problem with allocation that is the really hard one is how do you maintain a truly diversified portfolio in the face of potential underperformance relative to your peers who don't follow the same strategy. And I get it. I mean, I, I, I really feel for the, quite the problems that many of my potential clients, especially the ones that don't allocate to me, you know, many of them are like, I just want to be long equities. And maybe they're, they're willing to say it, or sometimes they just, they, they're, they're unconsciously Their saying, actions speak to that, that sentiment. Right, right. And that's normal optimism bias. And, it, and it's been true for a dozen years. So to me, the hard trade and the right way to do this is just to have some. Get off zero in the truly diversifying trades. Do you have a slug of your portfolio that is going to just crush it if rates rise and stocks don't go up? What happens if stocks go down? Are you going to be okay? And those people that have that are going to be the heroes. I mean, true heroes, the ones that save 
their pension funds, the ones that save their families. And I think there, there's a chance that we are entering a world where there's existential threats to multi-generational pools of wealth from overprinting of fiat. It's not equity bear market to take people out of the game. I mean, every family in the world can survive a 50% decline, even a 75% decline in their equity holdings. It's not that it's horrible and sad, but it's not completely, it's not an elimination event. Yeah. But if you lose 99.99% of your real value, you're out of the game. And that's what's happened in these hyperinflationary events. And yeah. that to me is the greatest risk. And if you think about it, well, what do we know is going to happen during this thing? Well, probably interest rates are going to rise. Okay. That's a good thing to protect against. Probably it's going to be pretty volatile. Okay. That's good too. Probably I want people that can make money long equities and not at 0.3 beta at one beta, or maybe even more than one beta. If stocks really go through the roof, because we don't know. And that's that like to have that humble question. I don't know which of those four quadrants I'm most exposed to, but whatever happens, I've got something in there, even if it hasn't made money recently or even for a bunch of years. That to me is good portfolio allocation, but it's really hard to do that because your investment committee, I, I, you guys are. Well, you know I this. think, yeah, oh, yeah. No, listen, I mean, we've, it's, uh, it's recency I, I bias my... drives the overconfidence bias, yeah. drives the allocation. It's just exactly. this vicious, exactly. vicious circle. I spent my career before me and Mike and Adam banging my head against the wall. And then Mike, Adam, and I got together and we all did it together for the following 15 years. Um, I don't know what it is about this group of individuals that it, we may enjoy it. I don't know. But I think that it is really difficult to go uh, against this mass optimism that exists in being long equity and asking anybody to reduce their equity position. Even I found this to be true even during like post 08. Yeah. Um, just this, the, the belief in, in human ingenuity and optimism and the markets will come back up again. And the fact that you're looking at drawdowns that happen very seldomly, most years you're showing double digit returns on the S&P or Acqui, even though during that decade you annualize at zero, right? But this, this you're fighting against human ingenuity, I think, is why people don't like you and they don't yes. want you to be right, right? Yes. Um, I but think, I, th I think the answer is actually to reframe the entire question. So how do you reframe that? What you're really suggesting in this situation is you've done so well, but we're smarter than you are. So you should give us some of that money that's done such a great job that you've worked so hard on to make that phenomenal return portfolio you should give it to us because we know better than you do. Right. And oh my yes. God, dude. Well, how do you reframe that? Because that is exactly <laughs> what we've been saying for 10 years. You're so right. That is the subtext of what we've been saying for 10 years. All right. And the what is the secret? And the total, num the total number of assets raised by that emotionally driven approach is zero. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> All right, so here's, how, so here's how you frame it. And it only works for strategies that are very capital efficient. Sure. Like managed futures. <clears throat> yep. Here's what we will do. You can We can take any exposure you have, stocks, bonds, MSCI world, BGA, distressed hedge funds, whatever you want. And we will give you that exact exposure with us overlaid on top of that. Exactly. And we will do something like double your return 
and make your overall risk even less in that combination. And that's how powerful it is. A lot of these combinations yeah. like us plus equities and one of our funds ended up something like triple the return, two and a half times the sharp, less overall volatility. And you still have like a 0.97 correlation to your underlying index that you had originally. You don't have to get somebody to take from what they have and give it to you if you can serve as an overlay and give them the same exposure plus you. And so that to me is the ultimate reframing of this. And it can be done with swaps. Yes, it might cost you 50 or 100 basis points a year to do it with somebody that's going to lend you 100%, sorry, 200% versus 100% total assets. But money's cheap, right? I mean, negative interest rates, they'll even pay you to do it. So It's so funny that it took us 15 years to come to this point. Um, we wrote a piece called Stacking Returns that just went public like last month. And it discusses public funds that now have embedded betas in them, plus CTA or plus global macro, and how you can put multiple embedded leverage together. too, I think, too, right, Rod? And, and, That's a, yeah, 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 levered, yeah. Uh, yeah, beta plus alpha levered up. Yeah. And you can put them together in such a way where you can get your 60, you can get your 40, you can get 60% CTA and global macro with a little bit of tail protection, right? And all of a sudden, you're giving people what they want with that medicine on top, right? Exactly. Um, I mean, it's and it's really funny because for that. me, for me, when I first heard of Milburn, for example, right, that launched this fund that had 100% equity and then the CTA on top, advisors would be like, "Why would I pay somebody money if they're if I'm if they're doing something that I can do on my own?" And I was like, "Yeah, of course, that's ridiculous. Why would they do that?" Well, now, now I understand like the positioning is, no, you're getting the beta for free. You're paying me for this other thing, but you're getting the beta for free. And what you get with that is an added level of comfort and stick to itness that you wouldn't otherwise get if I just offered you the pure thing, right? Exactly. So exactly. I've, it's, you know, it's taken me years to go from like, yeah, why would you pay somebody to, to do that? And he's like, actually, you should pay more because you're not paying the behavioral tax of that beta alpha. And yep. uh, our funds yep. now have both too, like beta and alpha. And this is why we wrote the paper that you can put a bunch of these guys together and get get both things. But it's amazing how you have to, you do have to position it in as a yes and, as right. as yes. all the improv uh, people out there would understand. There's a reason why exactly. the yes and is such a powerful thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, and it, it also doesn't have the almost antagonistic, we know better than you aspect because no, yeah. you know, the, when I, I had someone say, when someone wants to be the smartest person in the room, let them. And the reality is, I can't, I can't deny that most everybody I talk to has better returns than I do. That's true for everyone that's not long equities, basically. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, yep. you know, so from, from an objective perspective, I'm not as smart as everybody else that I'm talking to. However, I think the combination and getting to that consensus, that beautiful synthesis of you can keep all that great equity exposure that you have and get the special medicine of we'll make the downside smaller. And by doing that, and this is the key, it's not just that your downside smaller and your vol is lower. Nobody wants that. They can't sell that either. I've discovered after 30 years of trying. That's right. What you can sell is you're going to make more money and you're going to be a hero just in case right. the rest of your portfolio doesn't do as well. And that is something that you can sell. The, the heroism of taking that intellectual leap 
and saying, I'm not going to be like everybody else. I'm going to get what everybody else has and I'm going to get more of it. And I'm going to have a smaller downside too. That's what negatively correlated strategies can do. So Roy, what's the structure for that? You mentioned swaps. So is this some, is, is the revelation here that um, in order to be able to represent that solution, you need to go to a few investment banks and say, you know, how, how, how might we structure this? And then you're able to go to um, existing plans and say, listen, and deliver the, the pitch that you just said, the yes and pitch and say, we already have solutions set up that allow you to have your cake and eat it too. I'm just from a business standpoint, what is the, what are sort of the steps to take in order to facilitate that vision for the institutional space? I I think it really depends on what the structure is, What we're, I, we've tried this in the past and this is not a particularly new idea for us, but where we, the error that we made or the failure that we had was we decided to figure out what the combination needed to be. And maybe that combination was 100% like Milgram. We'd had the same thing, 100% the S&P plus us. But not everybody wants that. So the idea is if you're capital efficient, you can run an SMA on top of an existing exposure that someone else can do for you. Or we can synthesize it. Or we can do it in a swap. There are a lot of different ways to do it. So it's really almost a partnership question. How would you prefer that we do it? But there are a lot of ways to do it. And you know, the, the, the numbers are just spectacular when you add mm-hmm. a, a strategy that's got, you know, like for the, the smart alpha fund that I've been talking about, it's got like, you know, nine or 10% return, nine or 10 vol, but it's negatively correlated to stocks and bonds. So when you add it to stocks and bonds, you essentially get 10% of portable alpha on top mm-hmm. of whatever you've got with less volatility. So if it's mm-hmm. stocks, you end up with S and P's plus a thousand basis points with less volatility. If it's bonds, you have bonds plus a thousand basis points with less volatility than bonds. And that's the beauty of it. And we can do that in managed accounts as you guys can too. And so it doesn't have to be a swap, but a swap is very easy for a CTA strategy. You're only using what, 20, 25, 30% of your capital mm-hmm. on a daily basis. So there's not a huge funding cost. It's not like a hedge fund where there, you're going to have to pay a hundred percent just to invest. And then there's an additional leveraging that they're paying for. So yeah. CTA is quite unique to the, the managed futures right, space. For right. Sure. The capital efficiency is what makes managed futures a beautiful investment, even trend following. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting discussion to have because it truly is one of those, this, this belief system that again, in the, in the first iteration of how to communicate is that you're not doing the right thing. It's not smart for you to do it because look at what happened in 2000, 2010, look at what happened in the seventies not only in the 70s that you have poor returns in equities, but you were highly correlated to bonds, so you're not even getting that. You know, that's, that doesn't work, right? Because they've done so well. So you stack this on top. If the 70s do happen, you know, this is another thing that comes up. If the 70s do happen and you have bonds and equities highly correlated and, and they're doing poorly, you saved your client or yourself or your family, you know, the vagaries of a zero real return and added, and especially in CTAs, there's so many commodities in there that you're probably going to benefit from a high inflationary scenario by being yes. along these things. And the benefit of the rebalancing between your CTA position and your bonds and your equities, that rebalancing premium from pure entropy is also an additive measure that you are completely put, leaving on the side and, and not, not bringing to the table by not considering adding this uh, this overlay, right? So there's just so many things that it, 
it's it's so obvious, but it's so difficult to communicate, right? Yes. I, I, another way to frame it that I've found some success with is to think of it in terms of what's going to happen to your up months and what's going to happen to your down months. Now, the, what most people fear when they invest in managed futures or, or us or short-term trading, whatever it is, is sure, my down months are going to be smaller, but my up months are going to be smaller also. Mm. And people don't want to lose that. They hate to lose more than they love to win. And losing that potential profit, which one is very optimistic about, is very scary. So the conversation has to be, we are going to make your up months 10%, 20% bigger. And you saw that earlier. The strategy makes money when stocks go up and bonds, and irrefutably. I mean, our fund is up, up this year. So the question is, if I could say your up months are going to be 10% larger and your down months are going to be 10% smaller. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting because there's no sacrifice. And when you frame it in that way, suddenly these diversifying strategies that have the embedded beta on top of it, you don't have much tracking error. You're going to have like one or 2% standard deviation around your benchmark. You're 0.97 correlated. So your investment committee is never going to nail you for that. Like, well, I'm 0.97 correlated to the S&P. It's basically the same thing. That's not a problem. And suddenly, but wait a minute, you can double your return by doing that? You can triple your return by? Yes, it actually works. So so how do you deal with the obvious objection, which is you're asking me to lever this thing up? I mean, I know we're talking about, we say words like overlay and portable alpha, but the truth is when it comes down to it, the word leverage will come up. And there's a fear that all you're doing is, yes, you increase returns, but you're also increasing your risk. No, thank you. I'm not taking the leverage risk. So how, how right. do you, how have you worked over the many right. years? Well, I mean, that part, part, of conversation? Is, part of it is to show drawdown by drawdown that in fact, we live for equity drawdown. That's our favorite thing. So you're not going to have more risk during this. You're going to have significantly less and we, and we have negative beta. So basically at the more you add of us, the less overall risk there is now that, and also, the fact that this particular fund doesn't trade equities means that you're never going to have double leverage in equities. Yeah, you might have it in fixed income, but you know, being two or three x the ten-year beta for a day is not catastrophic. It's not like being a three x beta on the day of on October nineteenth when the stock market goes down twenty-five percent. So it's a little bit of a you know, like what's the biggest move in the ten-year? Four or five points in a day, I guess. Which, right. by the way, was amazingly the uh, third week of uh, March, I think, had the, the biggest declines in the uh, in the tenure in, in 20. When, you, know, you wouldn't think of that as an inflationary period. But after that huge deflationary period into the beginning of March, that was actually the biggest inflationary yeah, period. In, uh, in, I'm sorry, it was the third largest in, uh, in bond This is March, this is March 09 or March March 20, year? March 20. March, March right 20, after the I run up. Yes, right, yes, after yes, the right, right, right. Deflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I just, yeah, I saw that this morning. I was actually looking at the, um, at how that, that 30 year did. And it was just a massive. Well, March 09 had a similar character for the same <laughs> yeah, reason. Yeah. Everything became a risk <laughs> asset. And I, yeah. you know, even crypto became a risk asset then. That, that's another thing that people have to think about. Like, what happens if everything in your portfolio gets sold? And, you know, those are literally the most volatile times. Well, the objection keeps on coming up that everything correlates to one. It's just the most uh, the most overused sentence 
a statement that I hear in this business. And like everything, there's a point where everything correlates to one. And I would say that, well, no, that never happens with CTAs, but there were a large amount of CTAs that also correlated to the downside, right? So oh, it, for sure. say, it's not like you could claim a whole industry to be, but to be immune to it. There's your strategy being short term and, and designed for that. You can probably hang your head on that, but does it become, does that conversation ever become easier for you? Or are you constantly having to just look at your own track record and show them we are different than everybody else? I, I try to, to answer with data, but, but yes, there is, I think there is a sense where, you know, I'm pretty happy with what I have. I'm just going to take the pain if it goes, because everyone else is going to be in pain too, and I won't lose my job. So it's, uh, it, it, you know, it, it takes, it takes a rare uh, outlier intellectual leap for people to really say, you know, I truly believe in the, and I get how hard it's going to be to have these strategies in there at times, but I know it's good for me. Kind of like going to the gym, right? <laughs> Amen. So, uh, yeah. Very good. That's, you know, those are good ways of framing it. I think uh, more people need to hear this now when we're at peak everything. Uh, and, you know, Mike always says that people make changes through crisis necessity change. And it's these types of conversations that I'm hopeful will make it different this time. Well, I'm sure the phones will be going in off the hook for you, Roy. And uh, so hopefully so. after well, this conversation. You know, we certainly love to, as you can tell, I love to talk about this stuff. So uh, if, not, if nothing else, I love to teach people and, and uh, listen and learn. And I, I certainly, you know, I, I, it's great to have kindred spirits. I think you guys have, you know, probably spent five times as much time talking about these issues than I have. So thank you for uh, being, you know, on, on convivial uh, partners with me here. Amen. Oh, I, I really great. appreciate all yeah. of the, the framing that you've done. I'm going to steal 80% of it if you don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> it's worth what you pay for. Uh, amen. <laughs> we look forward to, to invading Vermont to get together with you. Yeah, absolutely. Come and visit. We have a, uh, a nice setup there. And I've uh, my, my trading room has the best view I've ever seen in the trading room. It's just mountains and deer. <laughs> so, yeah. Hold on. I, I just got to shoot dinner. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's I, I've I've never done any hunting, but I fear that uh, in the most heavily armed per capita state, I may have to uh, learn about firearms. Is Vermont the heavily? It's wow, yeah. but those are those truly are a bunch legit of legit hunters. hunters. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah, home, the home of Bernie Sanders, the highest number of trees per capita, and the highest number of guns per capita. It's, it's a very unusual state. My family's liberal, favorite ski too, spot right? is uh, is Smugglers. We used to go there every year for like five years, and yeah, just love oh, just love Vermont. Yeah, anytime you're in the neighborhood. Come oh, you got it. You so, got to pick up uh, bow hunting. That's a, you seem like a guy who likes a challenge. Uh, that stuff boy. is challenging. I, I, I'm a violinist, so the only bow I'm. Yeah. He's a musician. He's bow. not a hunter. <laughs> and it, Roy, where can know, people find some... you? Where can they? What's the website for the it's firm? Just, and www.niederhoffer.com. And, uh, www and uh, mm -hmm. if you just type in Roy Niederhoffer, it'll probably come up to the right spot. I've, yeah, and, for and for better Twitter, or for worse, I've, I've been out there a long time. So. Twitter, Twitter handle and whatnot. Uh, I think I'm not on Twitter so much, but uh, okay. probably just through our website. There, we have, and we have some papers on all these things that I've talked about. Some white papers and, uh, and you make those available on your website. Those, those papers. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, those sound really interesting. I'm going to go look them up. Thank you. Yeah, see yeah. through. Amazing. All right, well, we managed not to talk about crypto, but. Uh, that's yeah. Nice. Well, yeah. One are are you guys actively looking at um, trading the crypto derivative set in your yeah. in your portfolios? Are you active that now? 
we we haven't actually added it um, just because there's still a lot of an institutional reluctance. At Thanks. The yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and I've I've been active for ten years. This is an example of one of my really poor macro ideas, which is that there is going to be tremendous inflation after QE in uh, 2009. And I started to look at inflation hedges and I came across Bitcoin. I said, oh my gosh, this is like the perfect inflation hedge here. So I was completely wrong about the macro call, but I was lucky in the timing. So I've been familiar with it for a long time. And we have a big prop operation doing that. We're heavily, heavily involved in DeFi. We actually have pitched a couple of partnerships with investors um, to run a DeFi plus managed futures portfolio, which is just an incredible combination of return and protection. It's just like the golden combination. And so wait, wait. I think that, I think there's a lot in there, but my longer term view on it is that there's going to be a great convergence and all of trading is going to be decentralized. It's just yeah. too good and too cheap and too easy. And 2 billion people have no access to financial services and DeFi is going to give it to them. And whatever the ESG concerns one has, you know, the environmental concerns or whatever about Bitcoin or crypto in general, the beauty and the, the, the extraordinary gift of giving billions of people access to banking and lending and payments and investments, which you literally can do with cents and do it. You don't have commissions essentially is yep. an incredible Amen. innovation. So I'm super bullish on all these things. I literally go from Roy's point of view to like literally the previous call, 100% Ponzi. It's going to zero every <laughs> aspect of it. Well, to, it almost it's going to save the world to Ponzi. <laughs> They're not inconsistent I've views, gone man. round trip twice today. Like aggressive views with all the data. They're it's not amazing. inconsistent views. Right. One is the tech will eventually democratize access to financial services. The other is Bitcoin's going to the moon. Like that, you can have Bitcoin go to zero and DeFi still transform the financial services. So, hundred percent agree. Yeah. The two views are not inconsistent. But Roy, yeah. we should chat uh, after the commercial uh, about all this. Uh, yeah. All right, sounds good. Lo love to chat okay. offline. Thanks on everybody. That, yeah. It's it's late. Thanks to everyone for sticking around to listen to me too. I know I'm uh, absolutely <laughs> one of the top conversations. Really, really appreciate your your Thank time you. and candor and the spirit of the conversation. So cheers. Yeah. Thanks. So stick Thank around, Roy. Have a great weekend. You too. Thanks all. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.